brothers and sisters, be finding, if you would, this morning, the book of Hebrews near the back of your New Testament, and we're going to be in the first two verses of the very first chapter of the book of Hebrews this morning. As many of you know, I'm a, a huge fan, a great admirer of Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president of the United States. I have a very large Lincoln library in my home uh, up in Cantonment, and I have uh, followed him and appreciated his incredible model of uh, integrity and leadership, uh, and I admire him for many, many reasons. You know, Lincoln didn't have much formal education at all, hardly any to speak of, but he had this tremendously inquisitive mind. There is no question he's been one of the most intelligent presidents that we've ever had, and that's evidenced through his incredible dexterity with words. One of those books that I have in my library is a book by Ronald White, a great Lincoln scholar, uh, and he entitled the book, The Eloquent President. You know, Abraham Lincoln is the most quoted of all of our American presidents. When he wrote, he wrote lyrically. Some of his speeches were uh, over an hour long. The Cooper Union speech, his first inaugural address, you think I'm a long-winded preacher. Go back and read uh, some of uh, his uh, orations. But then there's the other end of that spectrum, the Gettysburg Address, only 270 words long. They didn't even get a good picture of him because he was up and finished uh, before the photographer had even prepared fully to get ready for him. But as wonderful a communicator as Lincoln was, and uh, certainly today with as many effective communicators and vehicles for communication that we have now, none are more eloquent and none are more effective in their communication than our Father God. God is the most effective. You know, we have a God who still speaks. Can I have an amen this morning? We have a God who's always spoken, a God who opens up his mouth and things happen through the word of God. God is in, I mean, let me just say, when God speaks, God speaks powerfully, he speaks articulately. I think it can be said that our God is an eloquent God. And when it comes to the Bible, many people, scholars, have argued that the most eloquent and the most well-written piece of literature in the Bible is called the letter to the Hebrews. Now, you might not be able to tell that uh, from reading your English Bible, but you do know, don't you, this morning that the Bible wasn't in, uh, written in English. The Bible, the New Testament, was written in the common Greek of the first century. And as such, you can tell differences between Greek. You know, uh, John, for example, writes uh, kind of fisherman Greek because he wasn't well-educated. But whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews uh, was pretty well-trained because it's lyrical, it's poetic in places, it's sophisticated. You do not start a first-year uh, Greek student out in the book of Hebrews. You wait until he kind of has his sea legs or her sea legs under them. But Hebrews was written by somebody who knew how to express themselves very, very well. It's kind of the difference between fifth grade writing and postgraduate English student writing. You can tell a big difference between the two, and that's true in the biblical record as well. Very sophisticated Greek. And it's very interesting to me that this eloquent author, who we don't even know, begins with a statement about our 
very eloquent God, the God who speaks. Right out of the gate in Hebrews 1, here's what he says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God, what? Say it out loud. Spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has, say it out loud, spoken to us by his son. Now, there's a lot of mystery. I don't know if you've read the book of Hebrews lately. I think in the New Testament, outside of the book of Revelation, the book of Hebrews is the hardest book in the New Testament to properly interpret. There's a lot of mystery. We don't know who the author was. We don't even know who the original audience was. We don't, all we know is they're Jewish Christians, but we don't know where they were. We don't know exactly to whom he was writing. So there's a lot of mystery in the letter to the Hebrews. But one thing we can know is that the audience to whom the author is writing, they're going through a hard time. They are struggling because they're on the other end of a Roman emperor whose name was Nero. And anytime you hear the word Nero or the name Nero, you know that's a bad dude. And he didn't like Christians. And so these are people that are being persecuted for their faith. They're struggling. They're full of fear. Really nothing new about that from a first century Christian perspective. So with that, it's just a very little bit of, of backdrop. Uh, I think it's really important to understand here right out of the gate in the first two verses, the author is reminding the church that they can trust God because God is a God who's clearly spoken to them. God's a God who's made promises to them. And they could take comfort in what God had said and they could take comfort in how God had said it. And that's just so important. Can I make a statement here this morning? Unless God speaks to us and unless God speaks to us in a way that we can understand, you and I can't ever really be sure that there even is a God. For us to know that God is and for us to know God requires that God reveals himself to us in at least some way, if not several ways. If he wants us to know that he exists, if he wants us to know that we can relate to him, he's got to speak to us in some way. And the question this morning is, how's God done that? How's God spoken to us? And that's answered in part by this opening salvo in the book of Hebrews. Long ago at Many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Three things about that that I want you to notice today. First of all, I want you to be reminded that God has spoken to us, most obviously and clearly, through creation. Through creation. Now, the author here doesn't specifically reference creation, but I think that it's certainly included in one of those many different ways that God has spoken to us in the past and certainly all throughout Scripture. You have the Bible thundering forth the reality that God is the author of the heavens and the earth. That's made very clear from the Bible's first statement, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God what? Created the heavens and the earth. And so that's the most obvious way to every human who has ever lived that God has spoken to humanity in a way that demonstrates that He exists, that He is, and that He's a God of power and a God of creativity. 
the voice of God shouts loudly to a broken and lost humanity initially through what God has made. Reminds us of what Paul said in his opening chapter in his letter to the Romans about how God has revealed himself through the natural order. How can anybody come to a knowledge of God? Can I make a simple statement? Just look around you. All you have to do is open up your eyes, look up, look down, look all around. Used to play that game when I was in grade school. Look up, look down, look all around, your pants are falling down. You remember that crazy game? And all you have to do is just look up, look down, look all around, make sure your belt is hitched because when you do all of that kind of stuff, let me tell you, you're going to see the Lord. To not see God in what God has made is to close your eyes intentionally. Romans chapter 1 and 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, in other words, the things we cannot see about God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been what? In the things that have been made. So listen, all you have to do is look at the complexity of the world around you, man, the sophistication, the order of the world and the order of the universe. Just gaze into a telescope at the heavens above and you'll see God. Look within you at the complexity and the sophistication of the human body and you'll see the creative majesty of God. Peer through a microscope at the hidden world which the naked eye by itself cannot see. Look through a microscope and you'll see things you've never been able to see before. And you'll witness the creative power and the majesty of God. Paul says just as plain as it can be, God is clearly perceived, obviously seen in the things that he has made. It's like an entire universe of billboards, one right after another, right after another, right after another, like driving down I-110, Pensacola, one billboard right after another. And that's what creation is, which is why the great New Testament scholar Robert Mounts calls unbelief, lack of faith, atheism, whatever, an act of rebellion against common sense. All you have to do is look and you'll see the presence of God. You don't have to be an intellectual highbrow. Here's the deal. You don't even have to be well-read to know that God is. All you have to do is look at the created order and by doing that, everybody can understand what they need to know to at least know that there is a God and that he should be worshiped, and that he's powerful, and that he's creative, and that he's mighty. And this is one way that everybody, whether you walk with the Lord or not, everybody, at least in this way, can clearly hear God speak in magnificent eloquence. Max Lucado, the popular author that many of you have read, says creation is God's first missionary. Isn't that great? God's first missionary, in other words, the one that gives original testimony to the reality of God is the creative order of God. Because from nothing other than creation, you can know that God is and you can know that he's a strong, powerful God worthy to be worshiped and adored. And this is one of the reasons why, for example, the Bible says that all men are without what? Who remembers? All men are without what? All men are without excuse. That's right. You know why? Because nobody 
will ever be able to stand at the judgment bar of God and ever say, nobody, I don't care who you are, when you were born, where you were born, nobody will ever be able to stand in the presence of God and say, I didn't know there was a God. I had no clue. Nobody will ever be able to say that. And that's part of the reason why Paul says, you're without excuse, brother. Because the creation ought to drive you to a deeper understanding of what's behind the creation, of who God is and what God has done. The painter speaks through his painting. I'm reading a book right now on Leonardo da Vinci, brand new book. You can buy it at Barnes and Noble. It's terrific in terms of how painters from the Renaissance period spoke through their painting, how they communicated and what they were communicating intentionally through what they were drawing. The painter speaks through their painting. The engineer speaks through his bridge. The architect speaks through his skyscraper. And the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so this is the fallacy of atheism. God gives everybody enough revelation through what he's made to know that there is a God and beside him there is none other. God has clearly spoken from long ago and the way that he initially does it is through creation. Secondly, God has spoken through the prophecy of Scripture. God speaks through creation. God speaks through the prophecy of Scripture. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Or to say it a different way, this is part of the challenge of translation, God spoke to our fathers long ago at many times and in many ways, and that's exactly right. In fact, there are a whole host of varieties, many times in many ways. God has spoken throughout redemptive history, particularly the redemptive history of the Old Testament. You remember God spoke to Moses in thunder. God spoke to Moses in lightning. God spoke to Moses through a burning bush, through a diversity of ways. God spoke to Elijah at Horeb, how? In a still, small, quiet voice. Ezekiel was transformed by the appearance of God in visionary form. Daniel was transformed by dreams. Abraham was transformed by God showing up in a body, a pre-incarnate experience, I think, of Jesus Christ. Jacob wrestled with the angel. That may have been a pre-incarnate Jesus. It may have been a celestial angelic being of some kind, but God has certainly spoken through a variety of different ways throughout all of the redemptive history of the Old Testament and the New, for that matter. And certainly God has spoken, as the writer to the Hebrews says here, through the prophetic scriptures of old. He's spoken through the law of the Old Testament. He's spoken through the poetry of the Old Testament. He's spoken through the history and the parables of the Bible and the prophecies of Scripture. From Genesis all the way to Moses, all the way to Malachi, you've got the prophets of old unpacking the good news that was to come. Isaiah, for example, as it relates to Christmas, the prophet Isaiah opens up his mouth uh, to announce the anointed one who would come to be the Savior of the world. For unto us a child is what? Born. That's the prophecy of the Old Testament. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The people who walked in darkness, Isaiah said, have seen a great light. And who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. 750 years 
before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So there's, here's the thing. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Ain't nothing new about the gospel. The gospel's good news, but it's good old news that's been around for a long time. The good news, the gospel, of course, is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to deliver us from our sins unto a right relationship with himself through faith in who Jesus was as the divine Son of God, the God-man, God the Son, and what God has done in Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. You trust who Jesus is and what Jesus alone can do for you. And you call on the name of the Lord, and the Bible says you're saved. That's the good news. The good news is that we're bound in sin, but we have a way out, and his name is Jesus Christ. And that's been trumpeted since the book of Genesis. The first prophecy in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3, for crying out loud, where the Bible says God looked that serpent right in the eye that had deceived the first man and the first woman. And you remember what he said? There's going to come the seed of the woman, which has to be a reference to Jesus because the seed comes from the man, not from the woman. Can somebody say amen this morning? The seed of a woman, that's Jesus who was born of Mary. That's right. Jesus had no human father. So immediately see a reference to Jesus right there, right out of the gate after the fall. He says to the serpent, who is the embodiment of, of the adversary, the devil, you will bruise his heel. That's a reference to the cross. But he, through his death on the cross, is going to crush your silly stinking head, which is exactly what happened in the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you know that's the first prophecy in the Bible? All the way back, there are only two human beings alive, Adam and Eve. And even when there were only two, who carried the image of God. We've got a prophecy in the Bible about the coming of the Savior of the world, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And so all of those, all the way through Malachi, through the great prophets of old, thundering forth the coming of a Savior whose name would be Jesus Christ, all of that's been written down in what the Apostle Paul calls the Holy Scriptures. He identifies the gospel, Romans again, Romans chapter 1, is something that had been promised. He identifies himself as an apostle. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, how? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Mark this down, our gospel is not only an old gospel, it's a written gospel. And that's why your Bible ought to be the most precious earthly possession that you have. Because this is the gospel right here. It's a written gospel from the time of the prophets. There's nothing new about it. The gospel message that Paul preached, <clears throat> the gospel message the other New Testament witnesses preached, is in fact, to say it again, an old gospel that the ancient prophets had been preaching for centuries, and the good news that the Christmas song says that we're to go and tell on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere is really the old news of the Hebrew Scriptures that have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 15, 
beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Paul says it this way, I delivered to you when I was among you, when I planted the church in Corinth, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sin. Watch it. In accordance with the what? Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's just another way of saying that the Old Testament clearly pointed the gospel long before Jesus was born incarnate God in Bethlehem. In fact, you read back through the Old Testament, over 300 times the gospel clearly pronounced in the writings of the prophets. 300 prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ, written in what the Bible calls holy scripture, holy scripture, holy scripture, sacred writings. You know what that means? It means it's the very word of God and you can take it to the bank. That's what it means. The Word of God, 2 Peter 1 and 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God, God speaking through them. That's the Bible. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is why, brothers and sisters, this is why it's a mistake to look for eternal good news anywhere outside of the Bible. You're not going to find it on Dr. Phil, and you're not going to find it on Oprah, and you're surely not going to find it on Jerry Springer. You're not even going to find it on CNN, PBS. You're not even going to find it on Fox News. The only place to find eternally, forever, lasting, life-changing, transformative good news is through the gospel written beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures that point 100% to Jesus Christ, who He is, and what He alone can do for you and me. That's what the good news is. It's a written gospel. This is why we give you a reading plan. Plan to read and read to plan, man. Because you need to read the Bible, you need to study the Bible, you need to meditate on the Bible, you need to memorize the Bible, you need to quote the Bible. You need to know it. I've said before, I think I've said it in here before, maybe I haven't. You know what I think the greatest invention so far of the 21st century? Okay, we're almost, we're, we're going on our 18th year in the 21st century. The greatest invention, you go back, the printing press was in the, 1500s or so, maybe the late 1400s, big time invention. You get to the Industrial Revolution, invention of the steam engine, invention of the light bulb, invention of the aeroplane, invention of the automobile. Those are all late 19th century inventions, right? Big time, life-changing stuff. You know what I think the most important invention of the 21st century so far is? Google Maps. I, I'm serious. I'm serious as I can be. It has changed the way we do life. Name me another invention in the 21st century that's changed the way we do life more significantly than Google Maps. Nobody gets lost anywhere anymore, hardly. I mean, you still can, but man, you got to be really remote. In fact, this has turned us into weak wheel sissies, guys, when we drive somewhere on the road. It's not nearly as fun as it used to be. But the blood pressure is a whole lot lower. How many of y'all can remember a day when you spread the map out on the dash of the car? And mama's trying to get you, you know, mama's trying to get you to the hotel. 
and then you turn down wrong way, down a one-way street. I did that in New Orleans one time, and a trolley was coming right at me. And uh, Judy and I didn't speak for 24 hours after that because she took me down the wrong way, one street too soon. Well, that just doesn't happen anymore, man. I'm telling you, I got in my car sitting right up on the dashboard all the time, this comfortable, soothing voice. I set mine to the British accent because it keeps me just a degree calmer. And she gets me right where I'm going and tells me when I'm going to get there, and she's always right on time. Did you know that's exactly the function of the Bible? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my... In other words, the Bible illuminates the path to make sure that you stay on the straight and narrow, to make sure that you're guarded around the ditches and that you don't hit the potholes of life. And this is why there's no successful living apart from understanding what God has said, and you cannot understand what God had said apart from knowing and living by His precious and eternal Word. Everybody still tracking with me? Say amen. God has spoken in creation. God has spoken in the Scriptures by the prophets. Third, God has spoken most importantly by His Son. We've saved the best for last. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his what? Say it out loud. And who is the son? What's the first name of the son? Shout it out loud. Say it again. Say it again. Sweetest name ever penned. Sweetest note in seraph song. Sweetest name on mortal tongue. Sweetest carol ever sung. Jesus, blessed Jesus. We used to sing that song when I was a little boy. And it's absolutely true. The essence of Christian revelation climaxes with God speaking through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, we can only understand the Bible as we interpret it through what God has done through the sending of Christ into the world. The thing about Jesus, I, I love being a dad. I'm the father to two kids. But no child is ever a perfect reflection of his father. No child that is except for whom? Except for Jesus, who is a perfect reflection. In fact, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, we'll get to this verse next week. Verse 3 says that this son is the radiance of the glory of God. Did you see that? And the exact what? Imprint of his nature. You come back on Christmas Eve, and I'll tell you exactly what that means and why that's important. Now, that's not to say that everything that's spoken about Jesus in the Old Testament was wrong. That's not to say it was incorrect. It was neither wrong nor was it incorrect. But the prophets only gave an incomplete picture of Jesus. You you understand what I'm saying? It just wasn't full. It wasn't full. The gospel announcement wasn't full from the prophets until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the theologians call progressive revelation. Revelation builds upon revelation upon revelation upon revelation until you get to the coming of Christ. And there's this gradual crescendo all the way, starting with Genesis, that just booms when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This is, for example, how the gospel begins in John's gospel. Very familiar statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God. You jump down to verse 14, and John says, the word became what? Flesh and made his dwelling among us fallen sinful humanity was just another way of saying if the word was God and the word became flesh, what that means is God became flesh. God took on flesh and threw up a tent, came to live among a lost humanity. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's just another way of saying this, that Jesus, when he came, Jesus came to fully reveal God to a lost and dying world. Jesus will say that later in the Gospel of John. Whoever has seen me has what? Say it out loud. Seen the Father. That's right, and that's what it means. Jesus is the exact imprint of Father God. He's a God with flesh, a God with skin on him, right? A God we can see and embrace and touch and hear from. So make no mistake, the gospel is a written gospel. But here's the thing, that written gospel is a gospel about Jesus. Jesus is the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus. Listen, you move a single millimeter away from Jesus, and you have lost the gospel. You disregard Christ, and there is no gospel left. Have you ever noticed, have y'all ever noticed how directly our faith is tied to a single person? I mean, we don't have a faith apart from Jesus. But that's not true of any other world religions, right? Many in ethnic China practice the principles of Confucianism. But you don't even have to know anything about Confucius to practice Confucianism. You can practice the principles of Confucianism without having anything to do with Confucius or knowing anything about Confucius. No Confucianist would ever say, I have a personal relationship with Confucius. Same is true for Buddhism. You can be a Buddhist, practice the principles of Buddhism, and not know a thing about Buddha. And every Buddhist will tell you, well, here's the thing about Buddha. He lived, I think, about this range, and then he died, and I think you can still go to his grave. So they'll admit, he came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and you can go to his grave. But no Buddhist will ever say, I have a living, breathing relationship with Buddha. No Mormon would say that about Joseph Smith. And not even in Islam, where the prophet Muhammad is revered. No Muslim would tell you that they have a relationship with Muhammad. No, Muhammad died in Medina. They can tell you the date that he died. But they don't have a relationship with him. They practice the five pillars, separate and distinct from the prophet himself. But do you see how Christianity is radically different from that? You can't separate Christianity from Christ. Not even a millimeter. Because Christianity does not seek to drive men and women to principles, burdensome rules, legalistic regulations. We drive people to a relationship with a living Lord. A God who is not dead, but who's very much alive who walks with us, communicates with us, still talks to us today. He's talking to us this morning, speaking through his word, speaking by his spirit, who is alive in those who are blood-bought followers of Christ by faith. And that's why Jesus, in his earthly birth, in his coming to us, 
is the best communication of all. And that's the beauty about Hebrews. All throughout the book of Hebrews, you've got this author writing to Jewish Christians who are under heavy persecution, many of whom are thinking, is following Jesus worth the cost? And all throughout the letter, he's saying, Jesus is superior to anyone else and anybody else and anything else. If there's a theme to Hebrews, it's Jesus is better. And in chapter 3, he'll say, Jesus is better than angels. Some of y'all get all worked up about angels. Jesus is better than any angel. He'll say, Jesus is better than Moses. To a Jew, he's going to say that? Yeah, he's going to say it because it was true and still is. He's going to say, Jesus is better than the prophets, better than the prophetic system. He's going to say, Jesus is better than the priesthood. He's going to say, Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system because he's a once-for-all sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could never redeem, never free. Only Jesus Christ can purge a person from sin now and forever. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews will say Jesus is better and unique and superior because unlike a calf, unlike a pigeon, unlike a bull, unlike a goat, when Jesus saves, he saves, in his words, to the uttermost which means he saves completely, once and for all, and forever. I was in Lowe's and Home Depot yesterday. Y'all pray for me. It didn't go well. <laughs> I went in to get a couple of things and ended up walking out with this shop. I mean, it just, it's bad. Christmas is not altogether a good thing for me. Anyway, air filters. You ever seen that when you go to the air filter section? Home air filters for your air conditioning system at home. You know, they make it as complicated. For $5, you can have one that's good. And for $8.50, you can have one that's better. And for $12.50, you can get the very best of all. There's good, there's better, and there's best. Did you ever realize that in Jesus, you got all three wrapped up in one? Somebody say amen. You got a savior who's infinitely good. <clears throat> you have a savior who is infinitely better than anything to whom he can possibly be compared. You have a savior who is like the wine he created out of water at the wedding at Galilee. He is the very best of all. He is Jesus Messiah. He is Jesus anointed one. He is son of God, son of man, savior of the world. Can we say it together? Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And he's Lord in his birth. He's Lord in his life. He's Lord in his death. He's Lord in his resurrection mark it down he is the supreme revelation of God Jesus is God at his most eloquent because Jesus is God's final word to you the question today is do you know him not do you know all about him but do you know him personally does he live in you? Has he changed your life for eternity? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And for just a moment, I want you to ponder that question.